0: Good to see you here at the EU public meeting. My name's Rowan, I lead the staff team and works alongside the EU. Glad you could join us here today. Are you a racist? Now I doubt anyone would probably admit to being a racist, but I wonder whether sometimes, just in the way that you behave, you might be an unintentional racist, just having a maybe a unthinking disposition to gravitate towards those people who are more like you, or with whom you feel more comfortable, just because they look like you or they have a culture like you. So you know, uh, I don't want to make light of racism, but um, because it's a very serious problem in our world but it's a bit like engineers who really feel more comfortable frankly talking to engineers and law students who really would prefer to talk to other law students like that's not racism that's probably even more messed up than racism if you can't even talk to people who study other things in you but there's I just wonder whether as humans we have a disposition an unthinking sort of Alignment with fear of the other. And therefore we just cling to those who are more similar to us. Now you might like to discuss that over lunch about what you think about that. But I I think I'm pretty clear on this. Christians, people who have a living faith in the Lord Jesus, have less reason to be racist, or if you like to flip it around the other way, have the most reasons to not be racist, of anyone in the world christians have the most reason to not be racist in any of our interactions and that's tricky because whilst none of us hopefully would be uh, deliberately racist in our relationships if there is an unthinking sort of predisposition that we have that just sort of gravitates us towards those who are like us then as Christians who understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that should address that predisposition. It should challenge it and ask us whether we will go to the other for the sake of Jesus. That's the sort of idea that I want to explain a bit today and think about a bit today. Having raised it now, we're going to sort of return to it at the end. The reason I'm raising it is because we've been looking at the book of Genesis over these last seven weeks, just the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis. It's the very first book in the Christian Bible, and it's the very first chapters in that first book of the Christian Bible. And as you would expect, it sets up everything else you read in the Bible. But because the Bible is God's word to humanity about life, it actually sets up our understanding of life. It, set up, it sets up our understanding of actually world history from these first 12 chapters. So just before we get into the section we're looking at today, let me just run you through that so that you can sort of see, okay, this is what we've tried to cover over the last number of weeks. I mentioned a while, a few weeks ago that the book of Genesis is not divided up actually into chapters and verses. They were added much later. The original sort of uh, writer, compiler of the, of the book of Genesis used instead a repeated phrase to delineate the different sections of the book and that phrase is the account of or this is the generations of depending on what translation you're reading and this is used a number of times throughout the book with along with the very first section of the book which starts in the beginning it creates 12 sections or panels the book is divided into these sections now these sections are not even in length at all some are very very long sections some are very very short That might offend your sense of order, because you like everything to be the same, but the original author wasn't worried about that. They're just telling the story in a different sort of way. Twelve sections, and we've been looking at the first six so far. Today we'll look at the seventh, which sets up the rest of the book of Genesis and indeed the rest of the Bible. Um, So what my theory, my running theory on these opening chapters of the book of Genesis is that they are answering questions... That every human being in every time and every place asks these are arts that's answering universal questions once you get to what we call genesis chapter 12 or the seventh panel in this arrangement the focus of the book narrows down onto one particular person abram or abraham and then his descendants prior to that moment it's all universal in scope and i think that's deliberate It's trying to answer questions that every human being in every place and time and culture asks. So what are those questions that we've looked at over the course of these weeks? Well, in the first panel, there are two questions. Who are the gods? And the answer that we saw in that first panel, the Lord alone is God. He is the sole creator of everything. He is not to be confused with his very good creation. We're to worship the one true living God, one true living God, not his creation. But it also raised the question of who are we? Who are human beings? And the answer you got from the first panel was we are God's image bearers in His world. That's who His created us to be. When we moved to the second panel, different questions. It focused in on Adam and Eve. And I think this answered the question, why do we have male and female? Why, why is there male and female? And that we saw that God's good creation includes male and female and the idea of families. Why also are there bad things in the world? He's answered in that second panel. And the answer was, through the story of Adam and Eve, our rejection of God's word to us, his command to us, which is a rejection of his way of living, which is actually then a rejection of worshipping him, what the Bible calls sin, that has terrible, corrupting consequences and earns us God's just condemnation. That's the explanation that it gives for why are there bad things in the world. As you move on, move on to the third panel, the question that you might ask in the light of those things, has God given up on us? Has God given up on this creation? The answer is no. The Lord God is committed to fulfilling His good purposes for His creation. He preserves a line of descendants who worship Him, even while sin and death still reign terribly. And that panel was a, a genealogy where you could see God preserving a line of descendants who call on his name, who worship him, even while sin and death were still reigning. That brought us to the fourth panel and the question, why rainbows? Now you might think, is that a question people are asking? But actually, everyone in the world sees rainbows. Why are there rainbows in the sky? Asked every child at some point in your life. You probably asked them, you can't remember the moment, and someone gave you an answer. Did they give you God's answer? God's answer is why there's rainbows is the rainbow in the clouds is a sign of God's present patience with our rejection of him. His present patience. Not a perpetual patience but a present patience. That points us forward to the one day when he will call us all to account before the Lord Jesus. The fifth panel, why so many languages? We talked about this last week. And the answer we saw was that the multiplicity of human languages that you encounter in the world is God's handbrake judgment that restrains our capacity for sin? Then you get to the sixth panel, which is another genealogy, and really I think it makes the same point as the earlier one. The law of God continues to preserve a godly line of descendants from Noah all the way through, despite the judgment of Babel. God is still working out his purposes by preserving a line of godly descendants. And that then brings us to the seventh panel, which we're going to look at today. And the question really is. How can we, human beings, in every time and culture and space, how can we find blessing? Blessing is a key word here. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, the very first panel, God blesses his creation. He blesses humanity. But because of sin, we've lost blessing and we are the recipients of a curse. So how can we get back to blessing? How can we get back to the way God wanted it to be? Well, the answer is the Lord God promises to bless all the peoples of the earth in every time and place, channeled through his covenant with one person, one man, Abram. That's what we're going to look at today. Okay, so there's the universal truths from God that I think he sets up in these opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Let's then look at this promise to Abram. I've uh, put it up on the screen there. I've colour-coded it. Not because I expected you to be bored, but because it's three themes in this promise God makes. So I've tried to identify this. First of all, notice. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. So the first part of this promise is about a land. Now, if you just pause and think about it, we're used to sort of just, we just read the Bible sometimes. We just read it. We don't actually engage our brains. Engage your brains for a moment. Have a little bit of empathy. Put yourself in Abram's shoes at this particular point. The one true living God appears. Imagine he appears to you somehow this afternoon, sitting on the bus. Suddenly there's writing on the window next to you. Hi, and it's God here. Okay, yeah, it's a freaky moment. But then, and then says, go from your country okay from your relatives from your parents house and go to the land i will show that's a fairly big call right i mean he does not even tell what land it's going to be just go to the land i will show you well maybe if you tell me like is it going to be the philippines or is it going to be tonga or like what country maybe that no, just go to the land I will show you, and leave everything. It's a big call. Second part of the promise. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you, and make your name great. Now, if you read the beginning of this panel, it doesn't start with Genesis chapter 12, verse one. The beginning of the panel starts a few verses earlier, chapter 11, verse 27. And if you read just those couple of verses leading up to this promise, it makes this promise really, really surprising. Because what you read in those couple of verses leading up to it is that Abram and his wife Sarai were barren. Abram is 75 years old, his wife Sarah, similarly aged, and they've had no kids. I mean, if you meet a 70-year-old couple and they've got no kids, you're not expecting to be invited to some sort of birthing celebration anytime soon, are you? Like, that's it. They're, They're done, right? Sorry, it didn't work out for you. But not in this case. God promises to make Abram a great nation. He's in his 70s. They've never been able to have kids. It's a, it's a very surprising promise. He's going to become the father of a great nation, such that his name will be, make his name great. God will make his name great. Um, I Imagine if, you know, Sam, who introduced our today, and imagine God said to Sam, Sam, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to give you a great name. Imagine all the, the descendants that come from Sam, and they're called Samites <laughs> because they come from Sam. That would make Sam's name great, wouldn't it? Because all of these descendants named after Sam—Samites or Zoeites. Or... not to give you—it's I mean, not going to happen to you. So don't get any <laughs> illusions. That's what he promises to Abram. You are going to be the father of a great nation. And then he says, third part of the promise, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Notice the theme of this last sort of section is blessing. And how does Abram respond to this? Promise from God. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. He listens to God's word. He's obedient to it. He follows in God's way because he's worshipping the one true living God. That's what faith is. You trust God's word, you trust God's promise. And that's what Abram does here.
1: Now, this promise,
0: to try to understand the significance of this promise, I want to suggest to you that this promise sets a trajectory for the rest of human history. I'll try to explain what I mean by that. This this promise is God's intervention into the course of human history up to that point in order to make everything right. To get everything back to a blessed state. The way we can see that is because if you track Backwards and sort of notice some of the things that had happened in the preceding chapters You can see that this promise addresses those situations. So let me show you what I mean If you think about the promise that he makes here to Abram about go to the land I will show you if you remember earlier actually in the story of Genesis what happened in Genesis chapter 3 as a result of human sin rejecting God's word, way and worship, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They were exiled from God's special place. What you see here is the reversal of that. God saying, trust me, Abram, I will take you to a special land. He is the reversal of that curse. In terms of nation, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden, their relationship with God was broken because of their rejection of Him. There was a broken fellowship with God And what's more as we saw sin have its effect all the way through chapters 3 to 11 we saw last week in chapter 11 what happens what happens at the tower of babel the people gather all together despite god's command to scatter and fill the earth and subdue it they gather together and they attempt to make a name for themselves now that act of rebellion god puts his handbrake judgment on by sort of Changing all of their languages so they can't collude together in sin anymore. But what does he do here in the very next sort of account? He actually says to Abram, I will make your name great. God is the one in control here. It's God who's going to achieve his purposes in the way of intends. intents. And finally, what about the, the promise of blessing? Well, if you go back for a second, You'll notice here how many times and I'm not going to tell you the answer. You're going to have to do the work yourself. How many times is the word bless or blessing used in this promise, in these promises? Have a quick count and talk to the person next to you just to confirm. Okay, that should be enough time. Who said? Who said four? Who said four? Who said four? Who said four? Oh, who said five? Okay, who said six? That's good, because if you said four or six, you're wrong. you are not counting right. you've got, got problems reading, so it's good. So five is the right answer. Good on you. There's four there in that last purple section. There's one a bit earlier in the green section. Five times is the word blessed blessing used. Now, I don't know what I make of this, but some scholars who don't you know, have lots of time on their hands have worked out that... Between Genesis 3, remember there starts with blessing in Genesis 1 and 2 and then curse is introduced in chapter 3 when Adam and Eve reject God's word, way and worship. Between chapters 3 and chapter 11, they've counted up how much, how many times is the word curse used? Answer, five. And then you get to this moment, the promise to Abram, and how many times is blessing mentioned? Five. Is this a deliberate statement really from God saying, I am undoing the cursing through this blessing to Abraham, to take us back to where we were? I don't know about the fives. You can think about what you think about that. But Certainly the emphasis on blessing is meant to contrast with the curses and meant to say this is what God is trying to do. He's recovering his good purposes for his creation and seeing them through the now, what I'm suggesting to you is at this particular moment where God intervenes and makes these promises to Abram, this is the
1: launching point for the through line that ties together the rest of human
0: history. Now, that, that's a big call to make, isn't it? I'm saying you, you think about anything in human history in the last 4,000 years, because you know Abraham, we, we reckon, was probably about 1,800 BC. So, you know, in the last 4,000 years, you pick any event, moon landing, your graduation, my birth—I don't oh, no, pick any event you like. Pick any event you like. What is the through line of history, which makes sense of it all? This is this moment, where the one true living God intervenes and makes this promise to Abram. You think it's just a promise to one? No, because what was the content of the promise? The last part of the promise he makes to Good. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It is a promise universal in scope. It is the through line that ties together all of human history over the last 4,000 years. So, that's what we're going to look at. How does that happen? How How does it work out like that? Well, in the short term, In the short term, by short term, I mean about 1,800 years after the promise was made, like for the next 1,800 years. What's the short term fulfilment of those promises? Well, the short term fulfilment was, yes, Abraham did become the father of a a nation, a great nation, known as the Old Testament Nation of Israel, Um, that came by a bloodline, from Abram. The Nation of Israel, God Brings them into a promised land, the land of Canaan. And indeed, they are a blessing to other nations. How so? Because anyone is allowed to join the Israelite nation. You have to give up your nationality, your other nationality, but you can become an Israelite. It's not a closed door. It's not only open to those who are descended from Abraham. You can become an Israelite. And in that way, there is a door open for blessing to all nations. You can join yourself to Israel, and if you become an Old Testament Israelite, that means that you're saying, I'm going to follow the law that God gave the Israelites at Mount Sinai under the leadership of Moses. And that's what it means. So that's the short-term fulfilment of that promise. However, you might remember, and I've said this a few times and I'll just say it one more time, the Bible is not like this. No, the Bible is like... Show me. Is it that way? No, it's that way. Right? The Bible is not like this, it's like this. That is, the Bible doesn't come to us flat with every part of the Bible speaking to us exactly the same way, even though it's all God's inspired word. No, the Bible is like this. It reaches a climax in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's ultimate re- revelation of himself and with, through the lens of Jesus, we understand the rest of what God reveals. So the Bible reaches a particular climax. So when we're looking back here at this important promise made to Abram, we have to look at it in the light of the Lord Jesus. What does Jesus do to those that promise, that covenant promise to Abram? The answer is he explodes it to a I don't even know how to say this. He if, when I say he explodes it, you could think, oh, did he destroy it? No, what I mean is. He, he brings it into a greater realm of fulfillment that was never, ever really contemplated. It's like you're heading this way, and then suddenly you're heading that way. Do you know what I mean? Like you sort of, it's just a, whoa, okay, right, now we're talking, I had no idea, I was going for Macca's, and now we're going for whatever a better restaurant is. <laughs> right? Like you're just you're sort of, Just a fulfilment of my desire for food, but just such a great fulfilment I'd never even contemplate. That's what Jesus does. How does he do that? Well, let's think about the effect that Jesus has on these particular promises. A great chapter to read in the New Testament that helps you understand the promises to Abraham in the light of Jesus is Galatians chapter 3. And I'd encourage you at some point just to sit down and read Galatians chapter 3 in the light of what we talked about today. But let me just point out to you a few key verses from Galatians chapter 3 that are relevant to these promises about nation, and blessing. First of all, from Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 to 14. Paul writes there, Christ, oh, Christ Jesus, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, referencing Jesus' death on the cross. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Paul has packed a lot of truth into those couple of sentences. Let me just point out a few things here. First of all, notice the curse language. That because of our sin, we are under God's curse, as articulated under the Old Testament law. But what does Jesus do? Jesus frees us from the penalty of our sin by becoming the curse for us. He becomes the cursed one, dying our death on the cross, under the punishment for our sins. He takes the penalty for our sin away. However, he doesn't just take our penalty. He also destroys sin's power over us. And He does that by putting His Spirit in us. Because when the Holy Spirit of God takes residence in your life and in your heart, you want to listen to God's Word. I mean, you don't always do it perfectly, but, but in your heart hearts you want to listen to God's Word. And you want to go on His way. And you want to worship Him, even though you stuff up many times. That's the work of His Spirit in your heart. If you identify, well, yeah, that is me, you're describing me, that's because God's Spirit is living in you. And that, is, that means that sin is no longer your master. There's evidence there, subjective evidence there, that you are actually now filled with the Spirit of God, one of God's children. And notice, you're probably not a descendant, a blood descendant of Abraham. You're probably not a Jew. I mean, there might be some Jews here today by birth, but most of us are probably not Jews by birth. We're Gentiles in that sort of Jewish division of the world. You are either a Jew or Gentile. That's it. It's just only two categories. And if you were a Jew, you're descended from Abraham by birth and therefore a member of his people. But when Jesus comes, he explodes that beautifully and actually says, no, it's no longer that you have to be descendant from Abraham by birth, it's now that you have the same faith that Abraham has. If you trust God the way Abraham trusted God, then you are a member of God's family through your trust in Jesus Christ. So Jesus frees us from sin's penalty by dying for us and then he frees us from sin's power by enabling us to receive the promise of the Spirit in our life. Second thing from Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Paul says this, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. There's a reference to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. So those who rely on faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. It's not by bloodlining. It's now by faith. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, then you too are justified. You're declared to be in the right by God. You have a restored relationship with Him. Not because you've earned it. Not because you live perfectly following His word and way. No, it's it's just because you have faith in Jesus. He says, if you have faith in Jesus, His death counts for you. And you... I declare you to be righteous in my sight, justified. And that's now open to not just people from Abraham's descendants, it's open to all, including us Gentiles. So, to be blessed, according to Paul here, blessed according to that promise made to Abraham, is to be justified, to be declared righteous. And then, third and finally, from Galatians chapter 3, looking at verse 28. Paul says there, as he comes to a bit of a conclusion of the section, he says there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Now you've got to remember Paul himself was a Jew and in the Jewish worldview, everybody is either a Jew or a Gentile. For Paul to suddenly say, you know what? There is no Jew or Gentile. That is radical sort of transformation of a worldview. there. There is neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. Now these things obviously still exist. There's still male and female. There are still slaves and free people. There are still Jews and Gentiles. But what he means is, in the next phrase, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It no longer matters your sex. No longer matters slave or free or Jew or Gentile. You are now all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So to pull those things together, you can see that because of the work of Jesus, the idea of a great nation is now exploded out beautifully into a new people of God namely all of those who have faith in Jesus. That's who the people of God now are. That's the fulfilment of this promise to Abraham. What's the blessing that comes to all nations? Well, now it is That people from all nations can be justified, declared righteous by God with the gift of God's Spirit through their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is open to all. What about the land, the land of Canaan? What does Jesus do to that? Well, Jesus teaches us that what we, as his disciples, we're now waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. That's what we're waiting for. So there's a sense where we are already God's people, we already enjoy his blessings and yet we're still waiting for that promise of land. So, if we're still waiting for something, that also just implies that there's what happens in the the intervening time. If we're already God's people through faith in Christ, we're already justified, what are we waiting for, the land? How do we wait? Well, this is where I think Jesus' teaching about this intervening time is significant for you and for me remember the promises to abraham set a trajectory for human history the particular phase of human history that we're in now between jesus death and resurrection and his final return in the new heavens and the new earth is this time where we're announcing the opportunity to all nations to find the blessing that god has promised through their faith in jesus christ this is the promise made to abraham but now fulfilled through jesus There is an opportunity for people from every nation, from every culture, to find for themselves the blessing that God has promised them if they come to faith in the Lord Jesus. And you can see there are various passages I've drawn from different parts of the New Testament where the message is continually given by Jesus and the apostles to God's people. Now is the time to proclaim this message so that people from all nations might come and find that blessing in Jesus Christ. We live in this era era of announcement, proclamation, that this blessing is now available to all in the person of Jesus. So how are we going with that? Well, I'm going to show you a video.
1: About 33% of the world's population identify themselves as Christians. But where do the world's Christians live? The good news of Jesus is spreading in the world, but not evenly. First, let's divide the world into regions by population, then show where the Christians live. Two countries, India and China, each have one fifth of the world's population, so they get their own section. The Muslim-majority countries also get their own section because they are similar. of Christians, followed by North America and the Pacific. Europe has many nominal Christians, while non-Muslim Africa has many committed followers of Jesus. Today, China has also many committed followers of Jesus. Other Asian countries act about one-third Christian, including Korea and the Philippines. Some Muslim majority countries have had Christian people groups for centuries. Of all the large areas of the world, India has the lowest percentage of Christians. As you can see, the Christians are not evenly spread around the world. Today, most Christians live in the Americas, Europe, or Sub-Saharan Africa. In each region, the committed followers of Jesus Are their relatives, neighbors, and co workers who speak, eat, and dress like them. In China, hundreds of millions of non-believers are now culturally near to followers of Jesus. 40% of the world's non-believers have many Christians in their own people groups who can reach out to them without learning a new language or culture. So their groups are called reached people groups because the good news is spreading. Believers in China have a challenging job to share the gospel with so many non-believing relatives and neighbors, yet thankfully they can do it in their own language. In the reached people groups, committed followers of Jesus can encourage the other persons in their families and communities to become fully committed to Jesus. They can also tell the many culturally near non-believers in their own people group about Jesus without learning a new language and culture. Many people in the world live in other ethnic groups, which have almost no followers of Jesus who belong in their communities and to know their language. They have no chance of learning about new life in Jesus from someone within their own people groups. 60% of all non believers in the world have few. frontier people groups, and over 95% of them are in India and Muslim-majority countries. These frontier people groups have no movement to Christ and no breakthrough of indigenous faith. Now is the time to unite what we know with what we do. So, we know that the reached people groups have lots of followers of Jesus who can tell them about Jesus, but guess what? We send thirty times as many cross-cultural Christian workers to them as we do to people in unreached people groups. Thirty to one. These workers are not just going out from the West. They're going from everywhere to everywhere. But most of them are sent to work with other churches in their training or outreach programs. Currently, for every 30 cross-cultural Christian workers that go to the rich people groups of the world, roughly one to the unreached people groups, including the frontier people groups. As a result, the needs of people in unreached people groups, especially those in frontier people groups, are being grossly overlooked. The remaining mission task is largely in India, Muslim-majority countries, and Asia. We need many more witnesses for culturally distant non-believers in unreached people groups and in frontier people. is the mission mobilisation
0: challenge of our generation. So, if you got that what they were saying, the challenge of frontier people groups is there's not enough Christians in that culture, in that people group, to have any confidence that people are going to hear about Jesus. So we need to send people cross-culturally. Hence where I started. Is some incipient racism in your heart Stopping you, crossing a culture to someone who might not have an opportunity to hear about Jesus. Now, you might be surprised at this next slide, but these are the frontier people groups in Australia. There are frontier people groups here in Australia who culturally have very, very, very few Christians in them. You You could take the gospel of Jesus to these people without leaving this city. You wouldn't even have to change job. Just change where you go to church, change where you live. This is the less reached. And I guess, I know some of you are finishing today. Maybe a good note on which to leave the EU is with that challenge of how might I steward the opportunities God gives me to serve those less reached with the gospel even here, even here in Sydney. And, of course, you can do it here on campus. There's people from other cultures in your classes, in your tutes. Don't let some sort of incipient racism stop you reaching out across the cultural divide with the life-giving gospel of Jesus, which is good news for people from every nation. Sorry I've gone over time. I'm just going to to pray really fast. Who's leading us in prayer? Thanks for listening to
1: today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyunieu.org.